Hi, everybody. Welcome to the 34th, yes, 34th edition of the PR Masters Series. I'm Mark Stevens, your host, and I'm also managing partner of the Stevens Group, a leading facilitator of mergers and acquisitions in the PR and digital interactive space. The PR Masters podcast honors living legends in our profession, individuals who have made a mark in the world of public relations. And we have such a person today. He's a very special guest and an old friend. He is Scott Allison, and Scott is global chairman and CEO of one of the fastest-growing global communications firms in the industry. Known for its unique culture, Scott founded Allison & Partners with a vision to build a positive and entrepreneurial environment where talented people at all levels could do great work and thrive. Scott oversees the firm's global board while continuing to provide communications counsel to many high-profile executives and clients. Scott Allison is an expert in issues management and crisis communications, plus presentation and media training, and he is regularly called upon to speak about issues facing the public relations industry. Prior to founding Allison & Partners, Scott was the West Coast president of Connors Communications, and a senior vice president and partner at the Gable Group. Scott is a member of the Arthur W. Page Society, and he serves on the advisory board of ISO Thrive, the fraternity and the church of the resurrection. He's a recipient of the Monty Award given to San Diego State University alumni, and he was a finalist for both the EY Entrepreneur of the Year and the American Business Awards Communications Executive of the Year. He's a patron of San San Diego State University School of Journalism and Media Studies, and he also provides a founding gift to the Glenn M. Broom Center for Professional Development in Public Relations, and he funds a scholarship that supports internship opportunities for students. Good for you. Good for you. Giving something back, Scott. How are you, Scott, my old friend? Oh, Art, it's great to to chat. Yes, it's, it's good to catch up, even though we're in a pandemic, but yeah, greetings uh, from Walnut Creek, California, just outside of San Francisco, where it's uh, unfortunately another smoky day as we're, we're battling the fires <laughs> oh, in Northern dear, California, dear. as we tend to do this time of year. Oh boy. Yeah. You've got some good ones going there, don't you? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's part of the season now. Well, I'd like to welcome you personally, of course, to the PR Masters podcast series. You and I have known each other for more than 20 years. Uh, I remember when your firm was just in its infancy stage, and uh, I even started working with you guys at that time when I was still uh, CEO of Lopes & Stevens in New York. So it is really good to catch up with you, Scott, and welcome to PR Masters. I'm going to ask you a series of questions, Scott. And uh, uh, a lot of it has to do with, you know, how, how your firm has grown over the years and also, uh, you know, some of your insights into the PR profession. So let me start with this, uh, Scott. You've been, you've been the CEO of uh, Allison & Partners for more than 20 years. You founded the firm with two partners, and you've never looked back. Take us back to the day that you founded Allison. Why did you do it, and what were you thinking? Well, it's just about 19 years. Art, we started the, we officially launched the company on September 4th, 2001, and you really have to go back to the summer of 2001. As you know, you were operating an agency at the time, very difficult time. We were going through the dot com crash. 
Uh, we were going through a recession, and things were really crumbling in the technology PR sector. Uh, my co-founder, Andy Hardy-Brown, and I were working at a firm called Connors Communications. And Connors Communications was a devoted uh, emerging technology firm and had worked with a lot of Internet startup companies and Internet brands. But, but great firm, great experience. But as you can imagine, at that tipping point, they were really starting to see a drop-off. And Andy and I sat uh, having a drink in Belden Alley in San Francisco and started really chatting through what should we do um, as we knew that this business was struggling. And we kicked around some different ideas. Probably we had more than one drink, and the ideas got a little more uh, yeah, adventuresome. So, but what we did is we went to the owner of the company, Connie Connors, and said, look, we would be willing to purchase the West Coast operation of Connors, which was a small office in San Francisco and Los Angeles, and Connie would keep the New York and London office. And that was agreed to. And on you know September 4, we officially launched Allison & Partners. We like to joke that we had a great first week in business uh, because that immediately led into 9-11 and you know, a really challenging time. But <laughs> oh, you know, when Andy and I started it, we kind of took the view that we think we can do things better. And we looked at the historical agency industry. And one of the things was, why is morale always so poor at agencies? And can we really build a place that is um, empowering, entrepreneurial, and really provides people a place to grow and ultimately just be about the work? And about the work became kind of a driving force. And funny enough, as Andy had collected notes on our conversation on a napkin, and three years later, for my 40th birthday, he gave me that napkin frame. Oh, my. It still oh exists in my office today. So, you know, it was kind of notes on a napkin that, that launched the company, you know, 19 years ago. And it's, it's gone by incredibly fast. Were you scared starting a business since you had obviously, you know, been employees of, uh, of, of your prior situations? Well, I think uh, yes, and maybe maybe not bright enough to figure out we should have been even more scared. <laughs> or, you know, it's, if you had talked to me 20 years ago and said, hey, do you have any aspirations to own your own business? I would have said no. But I think sometimes, you know, moving quickly and, you know, we, we felt that, you know, we, we might be out of work if we didn't do something. And at this time, as you remember, there was incredible amounts of layoffs going on in the PR yes, industry. I know. And so we said, look, we, we have a chance to either be unemployed or we have a chance to take this and run with it. And, you know, we didn't raise enough money, I'm sure. We only were able to raise about $300,000 to launch this business. And, you know, then 9-11 hit. And it was it was a very, very difficult, you know, two years to get it, get it up and running. But uh, glad we stuck with it. And it, it certainly has paid off into a, a really solid business for us. Oh, for sure, for sure. I've seen it grow over the years, and uh, and just been in such total admiration of you guys in terms of what you've done. So you have grown exponentially in the intervening years, without question. So even though your numbers aren't made public, rumor has it that your revenues are somewhat north of sixty million. So how did you do it? How did you pass your competitors by in terms of people, clients, and growth? Well, yeah, it has grown. We now operate 30 offices around the world, and you know, revenue is uh, inching up 
into actually the 80 million range art. And oh, got my. About five, my, my. 550 people, you know, give or take around the world that, that work with our company. And I think it's interesting because if you look at really the pillars uh, of what the company was built on, we wanted it, you know, a no hierarchy, you know, focus on doing great work, bring in senior talent, give people an opportunity to grow, um, really a place of no politics. A lot of the things that we said on that napkin, that we wanted to build, I think really stood the test of time. And we've been very blessed to have some really talented seasoned professionals join the company. Many who jumped from some of the largest agencies that were looking for a more entrepreneurial experience. And we really were able to work with in the early days, some really transformative clients. Uh, We started working with YouTube when it was seven people above a pizza parlor and had a chance to, to launch that. We launched MySpace back in the earliest days. Um, we had a chance to launch Dropbox. We had a chance to launch WhatsApp. And I think really some of the biggest, certainly technology stories, we had a chance to become involved in. And you know that then propelled us to even larger you know engagements and larger clients. And you know, we represent some of the best brands in the world today. But I think art, it was really the, the foundation and the pillars that we set down 19 years ago that propelled this thing. Well, you know, you obviously did pass your competitors by, in ter- you know, as I said, in terms of <clears throat> people, clients, and growth. Um, so, uh, you know, you, you're obviously attributing that to uh, the, the kind of people that you brought into the organization. Did you have any difficulty persuading some of these people to join what I guess was then a fledgling uh, agency? In the earliest days, yes, although, you know, there, there's some real benefits. And I think even people that would be considering starting an agency today, as we find ourselves in a, in a crisis time, there were some real benefits to launching in 2001 and rolling into 2002. Uh, real estate became dirt cheap you know, after the dot-com crash. I mean, 10 cents on the dollar from what you would have had to pay in 1999. They were giving away computer equipment and, and office wow. furniture because you'd, you'd go into these failed dot-com places and you would literally walk into a, you know, could be a 75,000 square foot space with three people sitting there and just mm. rows and rows and rows of, of furniture and computer equipment and then when we were able to hire, you know, salaries had dropped from where they were at the peak of the dot-com. So you had talent, real estate, and technology all at very favorable prices, and that gave us a real opportunity to launch business. So, you know, take me back to the day of uh, the passing of our mutual good friend, Steve Pazinski. Uh For you listeners out there who don't know the name Steve Pazinski, Steve was very prominent in the Public Relations Society of America. He was uh, national president at one point. Uh, he had headed a firm in San Francisco by the name of the Montgomery Group. Uh, it was a growing firm, and suddenly uh, Steve passed away one day uh, from a heart attack. And uh, uh, you guys, Allison and partners, uh, came in, and I guess with a little bit of my help, uh, you acquired uh, Steve's firm in San Francisco, and to the best of my knowledge, that became like you know, the linchpin of your organization. You want to tell me about that and, and uh, did, yeah, no, how that I particular think it's situation a, it's helped an, you? It's an interesting story, you know, Art, and obviously you were actively involved in that. And it's, I remember it like it was yesterday. This was 
you know, June, July of 2002. And we were struggling. We had only been in business nine months, really struggling to keep our nose above water. And, you know, Steve Pazinski was a, a well-respected professional in San Francisco. And the Montgomery Group was a, a really well-respected firm. And Steve sadly passed away suddenly. And I believe through you, Art, and a gentleman, Jay Clark, we were introduced to Patrice Pazinski. Right. who was Steve, Steve's widow, and, and Patrice and I met and had a chance to talk, and she said, well, I'd be interested in you acquiring you know, the, the, you know, Steve's firm, and I just said, well, Patrice, it's just we're having trouble keeping our own nose above water, and I know you've had some offers from bigger, bigger firms. Um, that probably would be best suited, and she said, you know, you really remind me of my husband, and, and you want to take good care of our folks, and so we kind of worked out a commission deal or created an opportunity. We gave Patrice some stock in our, in our business and we completed the deal in July of 2002. And we set up a scholarship in you know, Steve's memory that we continue with today. The Pazinski scholarship still exists today at PRSSA that we, we fund. And the interesting piece art is we Allison and partners has been profitable every month since. We did that deal wow. in 2002. Wow, wow. So I, I always like to think that Steve's kind of uh, looking down and been been helpful to us as well. So it's a, a great story and a great family, and you know I maintain a good relationship to this day with Patrice. Well, if you, if you talk to her soon, give her my warmest regards. I haven't been in touch with her in a long time. Um, I would do so, Art. Yeah, great lady, great lady. You know, so Scott, your firm – uh, as it was growing, you got acquired by uh, MDC Partners some years back, um, and I, I would guess, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would guess that your agency is probably the largest one in the MDC group. Um, why did you decide to be acquired, and, and, uh, and has it served you well? Well, it, it has served us well. So we sold a stake, a stake in the business to MDC back in 2010. And we are their largest PR firm um, in their in the MDC mix, but they also, you know, represent you know, many many large advertising agencies that are well known. But we are the largest PR firm, uh, and MDC has been instrumental in really helping us when we expanded into Asia. Uh, not an easy thing to do. You know, it requires capital and getting leases and getting through a lot of the legal ramifications. Our expansion in Europe, some of the acquisitions that we've done. Uh, most recently, we acquired One Chocolate in Europe, and MDC provided the, the financial backing. So it would have been very difficult to scale to the global level that we have now if we had not uh, you know, done a deal with MDC. And we really were attracted to their model. They were very entrepreneurial-focused. They would take a stake in your business and didn't want you to change your brand and really supportive of building and growing. And since we did a deal with MDC, we've grown almost 700% you know, oh, over my, that 10-year window. So, yeah, very proud of the collaboration and you know, have a, a great working relationship with Mark Penn and certainly the original founder, you know, Miles Nadal, as well. So let's, let's talk about Mark Penn. Uh, you know, uh, there's a guy who used to head <clears throat> Bursa Marsteller. Um was a confidant and advisor to uh, Hillary Clinton. Um, 
and uh, decided to start a, uh, in a sense, a, 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 a private equity firm or a holding company that made um, a number of acquisitions in both technology and public relations called Stagwell Group. Um, and uh, Stagwell Group came in and kind of uh, took a percentage of uh, MDC partners and Mark uh, got, uh, was installed as president. Has that changed anything in the way you run your business, or uh, or how uh, your role in what is what is still MDC Partners, but now controlled by Stagwell Group and Mark Penn? Has that changed anything? Well, not not from the Stagwell viewpoint. Certainly, working with Mark. What's been interesting, Mark, as you pointed out, he's a very distinguished man. He's had a great deal of experience in PR. And in, in communications and research, I think what's been different is uh, Miles Nadal was an entrepreneur and kind of approached it from that standpoint, and he had more of a leaning towards the advertising business. And when, when we did the deal with MDC and Miles back then, he flat out told me, he goes, look, I know we need to get into PR, but I'm not as familiar with that business. So you flash forward today, and Mark is intimately familiar with the PR business and has been you know, really helpful, supportive, and understanding of what we're doing. Well, you guys obviously are uh, uh, a terrific example of, 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 of how a firm, you know, within a – call it a holding company – can grow and prosper with the help of the holding company and, you know, and the people who, uh, who run it and support it. Um, but let's talk about you for a moment, uh, Scott. Uh, enough about uh, MDC. <laughs> uh, you've, got, you've received many awards as one of the top professionals in PR. So why do you think you were recognized as such? And don't be modest. Well, I think uh, you know you stick around enough, right? You get you get acknowledged. That I, I it's been I, I think awards, acknowledgments. You know, we've won things like Agency of the Year, and we were just named one of the agencies of the decade. And I really believe that it's the opportunities that you're given by great clients, and then the great work that people do. I think you know Andy and I are both pretty humble folks. We came from pretty humble beginnings, and. Our belief was always just surround yourself with with great people and allow them to do their job. And I think what's resonated is the the growth and the client portfolio that we've been able to build. Uh, We've got great retention. People tend to stick around for quite a while at our firm. And I think it's it's the acknowledgement of that. It's really acknowledgement of the cumulative. And it's funny, even when I launched the the business, when Andy and I and you know, there's a lot of back and forth on what the, the company should be called. In fact, we did a, a contest and, you know, people submitted names and I was really very hesitant to put my name on it. I, I actually wanted to go something that wasn't name centric and folks kept saying, well, you know, we really should have your name on this. But the only way I would agree to this is if we had it Allison plus Partners. And, you know, we now have 19 partners in the firm and people that have been with the company a long time and have really helped propel the growth. So any any awards, acknowledgement, accolades that I get, I really do believe art is a team effort. Uh, you know, Andy and I have had such a great partnership um, and Andy's been such a driving force, but sometimes he's been behind the scenes and. You know, I always joke that, yeah, it's kind of like the Rolling Stones. And, you know, he's Keith Richards, and I get to play Mick Jagger. But uh, (laughs) it really is a band effort. It is a team. Let me hear you sing. (laughs) No, you don't want to hear that, Art. That would be an abrupt ending to the podcast. (laughs) Uh, um, 
Well, Scott, okay, so you went from just a few people and uh, the, the formation of the firm uh, written on the back of a napkin, uh, and suddenly you're, uh, you said you're more than 500 people globally. Um, and, you know, so you are the CEO of this uh, obviously uh, vastly uh, growing organization uh, that uh, had its humble beginnings. Uh, how, how did you learn how to manage a company the size that it is now. Uh, I know you have a lot of people and a lot of good people, but you're still listed as a CEO. I mean, uh, you, you've in your earlier days, you 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 never had to manage a company of this size, but now here you are, uh, 19 yeah, years not later. at all. No, it was no, and I did not. I, you kind of went through the school of hard knocks. No, I had always worked as you start off art with my background, working at really small and mid-sized firms. On the plus side, I really had a chance, even at the Gable Group at Connors, to really learn the ins and outs of running agencies, albeit on a much smaller scale. And I think as we move forward, you had Andy's background, and Andy had been involved in building up a, a large business you know, in the U.K. that he sold in the 90s. And Andy really focused on kind of the, the back office, really building our financial operation, the legal side of it. Um, you know, the, the finance team, HR, all of those pieces that were critical. And that gave me the ability to really focus on the clients and the new business efforts, you know, from that partnership. So, you know, you do it at scale. You don't go from zero to 100. You do it over, over time of those years, and you continue to add great layers of people. You know, we added in a global CFO, and we brought in – you know, a global head of HR, and we brought in a CTO to handle technology. So I would argue that at this stage, because we have such a talented, you know, C-suite and group of executives, it's probably easier than it was in those early first three or four years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So size is not a barrier in terms of, but you've had to learn a great deal, you know, about running a large business, even though you have, you know, uh, some outstanding people in it. You had to learn a great deal. And I think you had to really, you know, global expansion has been tricky. You know, I think we've, we've seen the success, but, you know, when you launch in Asia and you have to build it from somewhat from scratch and expand in Europe, and there are a lot of cultural nuances that you really have to understand. And, Unfortunately, in both places, there's, it's kind of a graveyard of U.S. companies that have tried and failed to expand there. And we've been very fortunate. You know, Andy moved to Singapore and moved his whole family there and was instrumental in building out, you know, the Asia operation. Uh, my wife and I uh, moved to, to London for a bit to really understand and build the European market. So, you know, you really got to get your hands dirty and really understand those local cultures and be incredibly respectful of local, local car cultures. They don't really want to have it, hey, we're a U.S. company. We want to, here's the way you need to do it. You have to really embrace and get to know the local cultures. And we've been very adamant on hiring local people to, to run these, these groups there. Well, that had to be a key decision in, in the growth of uh, of, uh, of your organization, and that is, you know, the need to go global. Um, what made you uh, realize or strategize that you needed to be global, uh, I, I presume, in order to accommodate the needs of, you, of your clients? Was that a decision made suddenly one day, or did it evolve over a period of time? 
It, it really evolved out around two. You know, we had been with MDC for a few years, and around 2013, we really said, "Okay, we've really got a strong U.S. business, but if we really want to compete with the largest agencies and really go after bigger, more global assignments, we're going to have to establish our own offices." And as you know, you've been in the business a long time. You can go the route of affiliates and relationships, it's, it's a hard road to go because you don't have as much control over the work product. And we really felt that we needed to establish, you know, Allison and partners in those regions. So it was very much a strategic decision in 2013. And it was not, funny enough, immediately embraced by MDC. Um, at the time, MDC really operated primarily just in North America, Canada, and the U.S., and Miles really believed, well, I don't see what those big holding companies, they've really struggled. I think everything we need is in North America. But he did, you know, give us the ability to move forward, and we, we made an acquisition at the end of 13 in China. And, you know, from there we were, we were off to the races. And, you know, Mark Penn absolutely believes in global and is looking to make MDC more of a global um, operation, and we were kind of the pioneers of that, even over at MDC. So uh, it was very much a strategic decision about seven years ago, and has, has really paid off for us. We now have ten offices in in Asia, and we have you know three three in in Europe, and we'll continue to build those. Well, I know that China was a a, a major. Uh, strategy decision for you know for your, your firm and you and, and Andy um, and Andy uh, you know obviously had to uh, engage in some some sort of a sacrifice you know by being the point person you know to be over there most of the time and I guess handling all of the delicate uh, decisions that needed to be made you know to uh, to as you put it you know to 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 make you local as opposed to a US company uh, particularly in China with its complexity of rules or regulations, what made you decide on China as as a uh, primary uh, primary market in terms of your overseas expansion? Well, Andy started spending a lot of time in the region there, and really decided that China was going to be a great starting point and the, the growth in the region, things they were doing there. Uh, it was also driven by you know, we came across a great. Uh, individual there, Jerry Zhu, who was operating a company and was interested in, in doing a deal with us. And so, you know, Jerry had a 25-person uh, firm, and, you know, we started working with him. And then very quickly, as Andy, as I said, 2015, he moved to Singapore, and we, we built out organically an office in Singapore, and then we did a, an acquisition in Japan and brought on a firm there and kind of methodically started building throughout the region. Well, um, and I, uh, from what you said, you, uh, I gather you're uh, convinced that you need to do even more so uh, internationally. Is that right? Absolutely. I think we've got a, we've got a good toehold right now. We're really doing some tremendous global work, global assignments, but I think we still need more scale. So over the next, we're just finishing up our three-year plan right now, and it really includes an expansion into more expansion in Europe. Look to add a couple more locations. Uh, we would certainly consider maybe adding on another firm in the UK. Uh, we want to bolster up our offices in Germany. Uh, we'll consider a couple other markets as well. 
and in Asia, we want to do the same. And we're looking to expand also in the Middle East, uh, taking a look at Africa and mm-hmm. South America. So we definitely have an approach to continue scale. Ultimately, we would see art of probably 45 to 50 offices you know, around the world, if you looked at maybe probably the broader five-year view. What about capabilities in, in addition to uh, geography? Are, are, are you planning to add additional uh, capabilities to keep up with, I guess, uh, with, with the uh, incredible uh, technological adventure that we're all going through and, uh, and obviously what's ahead for the world of business? How are you planning for that? We definitely will. You know, we're definitely looking at different. We launched our integrated offering about four years ago, and that is we have almost 90 people alone that work in our integrated group, which is our, our video production, content development, research and measurement, very fast-growing group. Um, a lot of that in the U.S., so we're looking to expand more of our integrated services into Europe and Asia. Um, we're looking at our data analytics piece. We have a couple people in our data analytics group. We're going to look to expand that, um, studying AI and the impact and different things that you want to launch in that area too. However, as you saw during the pandemic, it was just such a strong need for very strategic senior-driven communications. So we will continue to expand and look for new offerings, but at the core level, Really, thought leadership, strategic insight, guidance to the C-suite will continue to be a big part of what we're doing. So back in the day when you were sitting around uh, uh, thinking about uh, buying that agency and uh, you had all those uh, thoughts written on a napkin, um, did you ever think that the world would change as much as it has in terms of technology and, and the various other uh, services and capabilities that public relations uh, organizations now offer? No. <laughs> and the short answer is no, Art. And I never saw the company being as big as it is today, I think. Uh, and I give a lot of credit to Andy. Andy was really kind of the dreamer and the person that really pushed to think bigger. I would have thought at best we could have been a very solid, mid-sized U.S. firm. And so this kind of far exceeded the expectations. And you know, you go back to, you know, certainly even Connor's communications, you know, the Internet was just getting started, and we were starting to do a lot of work in that area. But to see where it's expanded and also really to see the growth of, of PR and the role of communications. When I started a long, long time ago, Art, and you can probably appreciate this too, I always felt that we kind of played second fiddle in the PR industry compared to the ad agencies. It was the ad agencies that were doing the bigger meetings with the CMO and the CEO, and we were kind of expected to sit out in the hallway and write a press release. And that has dramatically changed, you know, where we really do have a seat at the table. Sometimes we have even a more prominent seat at the table than the ad agencies do. And I think that's been the real big shift is how closely we work at the C-suite, the CMO, and are engaged in the strategy of companies right at the highest level. So given all that, what would, you, what would you say to somebody who's thinking about public relations as a career today? I think in a lot of ways, Art, you could say that this is the golden era of communications, and you can get involved in so many different aspects. You know, I think you're going to start to see more data engineers coming in, so you could have a much more technical background and be involved in data analytics and artificial intelligence and helping to move a firm forward there. 
You could be somebody who's really interested in research and you could build a career path there in communications. You can still be very much interested in earned media and media relations, but you could also be a designer, a content writer, a producer. I mean, there's so many different uh, career paths that you could take with a PR communications firm. Unprecedented, I think, to even where it was 10 years ago. So, Scott, um, given how large your organization has gotten, and um, obviously the, the manner in which public relations and marketing communications has changed over the years, um, how would you characterize your management style, your own way of managing people, given the, the size and scope of, of, uh, of uh, Allison, uh, compared to you know, what it was, say, 15 years ago? Well, I think you can't touch everything, and I think that you have to learn to really hire good people and let them do their job. You really cannot be a micromanager at all. And what I'm really able to focus on, as I said, is we've got such talented folks from Andy that does so many different things in his area, you know, great global CFO, great global CTO, great head of HR, plus 19 different partners with a variety of expertise. I'm really able to focus on really the bigger vision of the company, and I'm still able to really focus on the new business and really counseling some of our largest clients. I'm still actively engaged and quite billable on on working with clients, and it's things that I still really enjoy. And I don't have to get as involved in kind of the minutia of the business. You know, it's a very complex organization with the 30 different offices and all the different currencies and you know, we brought on Julia Farrell uh, four years ago as a global CFO, and she came from Densu and had a lot of experience on international companies. And so she's done a tremendous job for us. And we've got Kathy Planchard, who leads the integrated offering. You know, Matthew Delacroce came on board and, you know, has built out our, our corporate, you know, group. Uh, Jonathan Hyde, who's been with us for the full 19 years and is really focused on the growth of our B2B technology. He just did a stint um, living in Japan to pick up more global experience. So we've just got a great team of people that allows me to focus on a lot of bigger things and, and not get too bogged down in the weeds of the operation. The perfect manager, really, really. <laughs> uh, so given that, tell, tell us about a typical day in, in the office for Scott Allison when you're in the office uh, or working from home, as, as the case may oh, be. Well, I'm, I'm in the office every day now, Art. It's, it's, oh, you are? You oh, imagine. okay. It's, yeah, well, well, the office is my home office. Ah, um, okay. You know, we've been at home. I, I flew back from Singapore on February 26th, and I have not been on an airplane since. And, you know, that was a, a challenging time. You know, in the middle of March, we made the decision to send everybody home. And so we had to get 30 offices and everybody back to their home office. It was a really, really difficult time. Um, so uh, you're talking to someone who used to spend 250, 300,000 miles a year traveling. Wow. And, you know, that came to a complete halt. And, you know, we were very fortunate as our, our CTO, James Duffy, about a year ago said, I want to migrate the whole company to Microsoft Teams. And Microsoft Teams has been an incredible tool. And Microsoft is not a client. So this is not a, a plug, plug for them, but their Teams product is fantastic. And be able to do video conferencing, just one button and connect and set up team calls has been 
you know, a huge part of the success of moving it virtually. So, you know, I've, there have been benefits. If you're not on airplanes, I used to have a, you know, about an hour and 10 minute commute to the San Francisco every day. And you got those two hours back. So you tend to start early, you know, tend to you know, do a workout and I'm kind of at my desk by, by seven fifteen, and you kind of work through the day and then oftentimes find yourself after dinner, jumping in and, handling calls with Asia or, you know, things like that. So very busy, a lot of video chats, a lot of Zoom calls. Uh, as you can imagine, there's a lot of interaction and, and a lot of phone calls, a lot of clients. You know, we learned how to pitch new business uh, via Zoom. One of our, our biggest account wins this year is we won the Budweiser business. Oh, and yes, yes, the yes, whole yes. thing was done via Zoom, which was a, a whole a whole first for us. And, you, know, you think about the dynamics, and you've done a lot of this too, Art, where we would have had to have, you know, nine people probably fly to St. Louis and the airfare costs and hotels and meals and all of that. And it really came down to a zero cost because we did the whole presentation on Zoom. Um, so it's been really interesting. You, know, you had to adapt and learn and grow. But we've certainly proven that we can all, from us to our clients, operate in this virtual world. I, I miss the connection. I do miss, you know, visiting and seeing people in person, spending time in Asia, spending time in Europe. And, you know, I do think that that takes somewhat of a cultural toll and, and hopefully we'll be able to get back to that next year. So that, that, that really is my next question. How do you think, you know, uh, given the current coronavirus uh, crisis, um, we're going through it right now, and we know how it's changed things in terms of how people have to distance themselves and how people need to work. Um, but do you think that uh, there will be an aftermath of change uh, following, hopefully, the, uh, the, the passing by of uh, coronavirus in terms of how your organization will do business? You know, I, I do, Art, but it's hard to tell. And I think you're a veteran of, of New York after 9-11. I think sometimes people make bold statements of, and, and you know, back then, people said people will never fly again. Well, that wasn't really yeah. true. And then they said everybody was going to leave New York City. And that certainly wasn't true either. So the idea of, oh, we're all going to go virtual and, and, and this is, you know, no, no, no more travel and in-person meetings. And I don't, I don't believe that. Honestly, I do think you're going to see modifications. I do think you'll see more flexibility and work from home. But I know talking to a lot of my folks, they're they're interested in getting back to the office. So I think some things will change, but I don't think it will be the monumental shift. I mean, there are trillions of dollars tied up in commercial real estate uh, that could take five years to unwind. And I don't really know if that's going to be the scale of it. I do expect that offices will be smaller and there will be a level of flexibility. I also think that we'll be able to recruit people from more remote locations and feel confident that we can do that. So as you can imagine, the last couple of years, we've had a real talent shortage in places like San Francisco and New York and London. I do think we'll be able to scale and look to hire people you could consider hiring somebody that might work up in Boise, Idaho, who could join your team and, you know, proven that this model can work. Hmm. Hmm. So, Scott, a few more questions about you, okay, uh, before we wrap this up. And you've been great, and I, and I thank you. So what, do you, what are, are you personally 
What are you most proud of in your role as CEO of Allison and Partners? Well, I think I'm most proud of we've created, you know, our, you know, 500 really good jobs. And we've been really able to give people great growth opportunities. We've got some amazing stories. We've got a, a woman in the firm, Jordan Fischler, who started as an intern in our Los Angeles office and is now a partner in the firm. And we've got, you know, many, many examples of the, the job creation, the opportunities we've created. Uh, we've really tried to make sure that we've, you know, shattered the glass ceiling and we've really worked hard on our female representation in the company. Uh, you know, the little tricky because the, the company was started by, by three men. But if you look over the last three or four years, the number of women that we've brought into the company at the most senior levels and elevated to that, and we've eliminated any, any gender pay gap. And, you know, we've really worked hard to create a place that people can really thrive and grow and stay with us a long time. Scott, who are your heroes? You know, it's always such a, a, a tough question. I've always, you know, admired people that had, you know, tenacity. My father, you know, went out and started his own business, you know, when I was age 12 and, and saw what he went through going through that. And I think I've just admired so many people that are maybe not the broadest hearers, people that you saw in your everyday life that you really came to appreciate. Uh, I could have never done this without my wife, who's been an incredible partner. We've been married for 30 years, and she gave up, you know, really her significant career to, you know, raise our kids and gave me the chance to really scale and build this business. So I tend to believe more in the everyday heroes. Um, I don't, I'm not going to throw out celebrity names because, you know, I don't know Barack Obama. Seems like a great guy, but uh, hard <laughs> to say that he would be a hero or anybody else of that nature, if you know what I mean. Well, it sounds like your wife is one of your heroes. <laughs> yeah. No question. Yeah, yeah no yeah. question. So in the spare time that you have, Scott, do you, do you have hobbies? What do you like to do when you're, when you're not focused on uh, the business itself? Well, uh, you know, it, it's funny that my kids have grown up. When, when the kids were younger, I was very fortunate. The business was smaller, and I was able to coach a lot of my son's uh, sports teams, did his Little League coach and his basketball team, and – my daughter was really engaged in like mock trial and theater and was able to be involved in those things. Um, since that time, it's been, you, you try to figure out, okay, what's been even your pandemic hobby. And I've actually learned how to cook. I'm uh, really? very proud that I now <laughs> handle about 40, 50% of the cooking duties. And uh, my wife had to suffer through some of the early additions, but uh, cooking has become <laughs> a bit of a hobby. And uh, I've actually been able to read more, too. You know, it's, it, it's funny enough, you get little time in here and there to do different things. Trying to maintain an exercise regime, been trying to train for a, a, a mini triathlon. So try to keep busy with a lot of different things. But, you know, the business is, is all-encompassing, even not traveling. Sure. Uh, I always joke that if, if the day ends in a Y, I'm probably working um, so you don't, you don't get a lot of time off and just really making sure you're supportive of the teams. And, you know, you're starting to see the end of this crisis. I, I think you can start to see it. It's, it's still probably six months away, but I, I do think we're kind of coming to the end. Um, our business has performed really well in light of it. We are, I think are one of the very few agencies we've not laid anybody off. We've not done any salary cuts. Um, we've actually been able to do a little bit of hiring, too, so really proud of how we've navigated this crisis. Well, and my final question to you, Scott, is 
where do you see Scott Allison in the years ahead? Well, you know, this business has gotten so interesting, Art, and it's so engaging. You know, the as somebody who started off in, in kind of smaller agencies, you know, I remember being in San Diego, and it was a, it was a great, you know, Tom Gable ran a, a really good firm, and I really learned the business. But you felt a little bit, you know, back market. You always saw, gosh, some of these big global clients, and wouldn't it be incredible to someday have a chance to work with folks like that? And that's what's happening now. You know, we are getting in and we you know, have a chance to work with, you know, Budweiser and Qualcomm and you see some, you know, Google and Samsung and Toyota, these fantastic brands. And that's only continuing as we've gotten a certain size and scale. We're really being invited to these dynamic pitches. And I'm really enjoying that. And I think the chance to really keep doing this and keep working with an up and coming group of leaders and be supportive of them. I, I don't really see that ending anytime soon. Well, it won't end, and uh, you know you you have a great organization. Uh, you've made a, an extraordinary progress. You know you're really a true case study in, in how to uh, how to strategize a, a business plan that accomplishes for your clients and for your employees, you know everything you'd hope for and plan for. So, Scott, you know I, I congratulate you uh, on the success you've achieved and uh, your organization. Uh, and my good friend Andy Hardy-Brown and all the other people I know within uh, Allison. And I thank you so much, so much for joining us today on the PR Masters podcast series. Well, Art, thank you very much. It's been great to connect, and uh, we've known each other a long time, so it's really great to connect again. You were great today. Thank you for sharing. And thank you all for tuning in to another of the Stevens Group PR Masters podcast series. Until next time. I'm Art Stevens, wishing you all the very best.